0: Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the To-Do List. I'm your host, Eric Fisher, and this is the show where I talk to the people behind the productivity. This week, I'm excited to share with you a conversation I had with Annie Duke. She's the author of the book, How to Decide simple tools for making better choices. And you may have heard of her before. She was a poker champion, turned business consultant, turned academic. She wrote the book previously called Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts. And in this conversation, we're going to talk a bit about cognitive biases, gathering the best information, why choosing things is hard or can be, which honestly, there's a productivity blocker right there, and how to start overcoming those cognitive biases that hold us up when decisions need to be made. This conversation's a thinker. You may need to listen to this more than once or definitely take notes, but I'll just get out of the way because this is a great conversation with Annie Duke. Well, this week, it is my privilege to welcome to the show Annie Duke. Annie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: I will say this. I wish we had way more time to just like literally talk poker, but that's I, <laughs> I, because up until the pandemic, I had a weekly evening poker game. And so I fully intend. Well, why to don't back. you
1: still have it? You, you, uh, I, you know, you can do you can play one of the online ones and do it on
0: Zoom. It's true. But we well, part of it was we just had so much fun being face to face. And, you know, mm-hmm. some of the game is about playing the player, not just the cards. And so we kind of missed out on that a little bit. We'd have to put Zoom up and then I don't know. Anyway, it's already I already feel like I'm on Zoom too much anyway. So. Well, we, but luckily and hopefully we will be back to doing that at some point in the near future. Yes. I am optimistic about that. But that's, I mean, that's, that's not one of your, I mean, though that's part of your history, you went from a poker champion to a business consultant to an academic, though you didn't, you know, lose the other things, but you had a previous book. You have a new book, but you have a previous book that leans more on the poker called thinking in bets. Making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. And I'm fascinated by that. And then how that juxtaposes or maybe is a first step to then the new book, which is called how to decide simple tools for making better choices, which I, as we were talking in pre-call decision making is probably one of the most, if not the most productivity challenging processes that people just don't even pay attention to because they Mm -hmm. think of it as as homework or, you know, they're not spending their time thinking about the thinking or the thinking they're doing without being aware of how they're thinking. Anyway, we can go into all of that. But I'd love to talk maybe. Can you give me maybe what what do you see as the relationship between the the thinking in bets and then the how to decide books?
1: Oh, yeah, absolutely. So so thinking in bets, so. Back, so I started off my life as an academic. I was doing my PhD work at the University of Pennsylvania. That was before I became a poker player. Um, and I was particularly uh, studying learning, uh, particularly learning an uncertain system. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, you can sort of see the relationship between that and poker, obviously. Uh, pretty uncertain, lots of luck, um, lots of hidden information. You can't see the other player's cards. Uh, you can lose because of an unlucky turn of a card, or you could win actually because of a lucky turn of a card. Uh, and, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges when you're playing poker in terms of kind of making sense of the world and figuring out what are the lessons that you should be taking from any given outcome, right? Like, if I lose a hand, why? Uh, did I make poor decisions? Did I get unlucky? It's, it's really hard to tell in the short run. Um, in the long run, you can start to learn some things, but the long run is a long time, and I've got to make new decisions about new hands right away. So I need to start to navigate that problem and figure out where that learning process might go wrong where it might go right. So about eight years into my poker career, after I had left academics, I got asked um, uh, actually by a hedge fund to come speak to their traders about the way that poker might inform their thinking about risk. And what what I talked to them about that day was the way that uh, whether you've been winning or losing changes the decisions that you make. In other words, it alters your risk attitudes. That was a moment where I there was this very explicit collision between the kinds of things that I had been thinking about in academics when I was studying cognitive psychology and poker. And I realized there was this really super interesting conversation to be had between the two, uh, you know, just decision-making in general in a business context, in a personal context, and decision-making in this game, uh, which is poker, you know, very fast-paced, very high stakes, lots and lots of uncertainty. I started thinking about the, the conversation between those two things, and that ultimately became thinking in bets, which is like – how do you make good decisions when you're making decisions with very little information, which is true of pretty much any decision you make as a human being, right? Like the stuff we know like fits on the head of a pin and the stuff we don't know is like the size of the universe. And um, we can all feel that, you know, as we enter into most decisions, this lack of knowledge. Um, and then there's, there's also just the fact that there's luck. I can make a really good decision and get a bad outcome. I can go through a green light and still get in an accident. I can make a really bad decision and still get a great outcome. I can go through a red light and I can get through just fine not even get a ticket I have nothing happen to me whatsoever and there's all sorts of times in our lives when we're doing that we're going through green lights and bad things are happening to us and we're going through red lights and you know good things are happening to us or nothing bad is happening to us and this this is actually a, a big problem for trying to figure out how do we become better decision makers? How do we become better learners? How do we sort of figure out what it is that we can control and what we can't control? How do we get a focus on improving the information that we have? Uh, how do we figure out when when we're wrong, when there is something to be learned? These are all big problems uh, in terms of the way that uncertainty might frustrate our decision making. So thinking in bets was really the result of... of um, you know, starting in 2002 through the time that that book got published, I started doing from that first talk, lots of talks to different groups. I started writing in this space and kind of thinking about this conversation, how how poker and cognitive science could inform each other. And that's what thinking embeds it. You know, what is the problem that we have as decision makers uh, because of so much uncertainty? So where how to decide comes into the picture is that after I wrote that book, I ha- I had conversations with lots of readers who said... Well, that that makes sense. Uh, there's lots of luck, and there's lots of hidden information, and that allows lot you know cognitive biases to lead us down the wrong path. And the world, you know, our decisions are really noisy, and there's all sorts of ways that our decisions are going wrong. Okay, so I believe you. How would I make a great decision given that? How do I create really good decision processes that would allow me to be a better decision maker uh, given the amount of uncertainty in the system? How would I think about uh, creating better feedback loops so I actually know what the world is trying to tell me so that I can become a better learner? How do I figure out when I can make decisions quickly and when I should slow down, right? Like all, all of these questions they had for me and they were all these very practical, all right, so how would I do this? Like I'm on a team, how would I do this in my team? How would I do this for a personal decision? And I realized, okay, so you know, thinking of bets had really given a lot of the why, a lot of the, why should you care? How do things go wrong? And why should you try to make them right? Um, and that I should write a book, which is how can you make things go better? And that that's where how to decide came from was really from conversations with readers.
0: Yeah. It strikes me that, that how to decide seems like it's almost the expanded version of the original in a lot of ways, but it's, it's not, uh, you know, I don't know. That's maybe short selling the first book by the the way. Uh, (laughs) Um, But I think well, what but, I- you know
1: what I feel like is I I think that I feel like um, thinking in bets may be focused a little bit more on the luck problem, mm-hmm. right? That like you can just get bad luck and you can get good luck in, uh, separate and separate apart from your decisions. So that when you think about the relationship between decision quality and outcome quality, uh, you know luck really uh, loosens up that correlation, so that you can make good decisions that get good outcomes, good decisions that make, get bad outcomes, bad decisions that get good outcomes and bad decisions that get bad outcomes. And all four of those things can happen. But the way that we kind of think about the world is that in different ways, we, we either downplay the luck or, or we kind of uh, highlight it. So when we're thinking about other people, Uh, We get into this resulting problem, which is we sort of ignore that luck exists at all. Um, You know, I open thinking in bets with Pete Carroll in 2015 on the one yard line of the Patriot. 26 seconds left in the game. They're down by four. He just needs to score a touchdown. I, I think everybody remembers he calls a pass play. It gets intercepted. And people say, like, this is the worst play in Super Bowl history. And the fact is that it was one of the worst outcomes in Super Bowl history, but it was not necessarily the worst play call. And in fact, when you actually run through that math, I won't bother you with it here, but when you run through that math, you find out that that mathematically speaking, that was actually an incredibly good play call, just had a really, really bad outcome. So that would go in the category if we like knew the truth, if we were omniscient, we would say it was a good play call that got a bad outcome. But the problem is that we can't see through to his decision quality. So what do we do? We do this thing called resulting, which is we say, well, I know the outcome was really bad, so therefore the decision must have been really bad. That ignores that there might have been some, you know, any kind of luck in there. And we do the reverse, too. The outcome was really great, so the decision must have been really great. That just happened to Andy Reid when he called a pass play in a situation where people assumed he was going to run the ball and try to run out the clock or maybe even punt and and see if the defense could could stop the other team. And Tony Romo was like super surprised by it. I haven't done the math to figure out whether it was a good play or not, but that one happened to work out well. And so everybody calls sort of an unusual pass in that situation, a great play because it happened to work out well. So this is where we can see this resulting problem This misidentifying or or not seeing the luck in the equation. And then we do this other thing, which is when we're thinking about our own decisions, then we see the luck if the outcome is bad and we don't see the luck if the outcome is good. Like we all know those people, right? Like anybody who's ever gotten a promotion, it's it's because they worked really hard and anybody who didn't get a promotion, it's because they're unlucky and their boss doesn't like them.
0: Yeah, well, and then you take one step further. We've all seen examples of this where you apply onto that the self-serving bias. Where, yeah, you know, right. people take credit for the positive and blame others for the negative.
1: Right, exactly. So that that's exactly right. So when you're thinking about other people's decisions, we tend to do resulting, uh, which is the Pete Carroll problem. And when we're thinking about our own decisions, we tend to fall prey to self-serving bias. So these are all issues about how well are we seeing luck? So I would say that thinking in bets is like a really kind of a deep exploration of the effect of luck with some discussion of the problem of hidden information. But when I went to how to decide, I would say that it's the, it's in some ways the mirror image because when you think about how are you going to become a better decision maker, well, you shouldn't focus that much on luck. Why? Because you can't control luck. So if I'm going to tell you to improve something, I can't help you improve luck because luck is a force that acts upon you. By definition, you have no control over it. It's the part of the process that you can't control. What you can control, though, is the quality of the information that you have. You know, we can think about this from a poker standpoint, right? The better that I am, the more I am at making really good educated guesses about what the two cards that you hold are. So one of the things that, that separates like a, a amateur player from a professional player is that the amateur player is actually playing with less information than the professional player is. It's not that the information doesn't exist. It's that they don't see it. They don't know how to process it correctly in order to map that onto to what the player holds. So the better I am at increasing the amount of information with which I'm deciding... And in particular, increasing the quality of the information that, I, that I'm deciding with, the better off I'm going to be because I'm reducing the effect of uh, what I don't know on the decision process. And you know, we've all had that feeling of, man, if I knew then what I knew now, boy, I re- would have really done different things. And so what we're trying to do is, is reduce the chances that you would be saying that later. And that's the part of the the equation that you actually have some control over. So how to decide ends up actually focusing much more on that side of the equation. How can we improve the quality of the information that we're inputting into the decision process? Because the quality of the information is the foundation of every decision that you make. So I can teach you a really good decision process, but if the information that uh, you have, if the beliefs that you have are inaccurate, if they're junk, um, doesn't matter really how good the decision process is. You're not going to get to a good uh, decision, you know, in the end. And then that's ultimately over time going to lead you to pretty bad outcomes. So, uh, so I think that's also a way that they relate to each other is that, Thinking in bats is is I think really thinking about luck as a problem and how to decide is really addressing, I think, this information problem.
0: That's almost a um a subcategory or a you know, a, a secondary in my mind, whatever the you know, subtitle for the book is not just simple tools for making better choices, but it's for me as I was going through, I was able to kind of identify and you know start to at least dismantle all these different hidden biases that I have or, or you know, at least become aware of them and then start to question them and say, well, Mm. you know, how, in other words, what are the filters that I personally have that I'm unaware of that then the information, however good the information or whatever the quality or quantity of information is that I'm filtering it through that then comes out the other end for me to do something with decision-wise.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know, step one is, To be aware of the problem, right? Like we have to be aware that we that not only do we not have that much information when we're deciding and that that there is an effect of luck, but that one of the things that is a result of that is that it allows that's what allows cognitive bias You know, things like confirmation bias and overconfidence and availability bias. And we talked about omission commission bias before we started recording and uh, better than average effect. Right. Which is uh, the illusion of control, like all all these things. Someone just go to the wiki page and say, oh, look, what are all the cognitive biases? It's a very long list That, that those can exist in the same way. But for the fact that there's so much uncertainty in the world. Because if, if you think about it, like, you know, I make this comparison between poker and chess and thinking in bats. And, you know, I carry that through a little bit into how to decide. But if you think about a game of chess, if you and I play a game of chess and I lose, it's hard for me to be super biased about why I lost. <laughs> right. Like, where, where's the space for me to say, oh, I just got really unlucky. Right. Like, I mean, Gary Kasparov would say that, you know, sometimes they would say, oh, you know, I didn't sleep well last night. Right. Or um or I'm coming down with a cold. Right. Like that, you might say things like that, like that's a way to a little bit get it kind of get it off your plate. But even so, what you're saying is and so I did not play as well as the other person. Right. Like that. That's the end of that sentence. Right. Which when you think about poker, you don't need to start saying I, I'm sick or I didn't sleep well. You just get to say, well, I I'm a great player, but I just got unlucky. Right. Because because there's such a strong influence of luck. There's so much uncertainty in any given outcome that you get at a poker table that it's it's very easy for you to start have these very biased explanations of why things occur. And if you want to doubt that this isn't a strong human tendency, all you need to know is like, a, you know, when you look at car accident reports. So these are two car accidents. Um, it's something approaching, I think, 90 percent of them. Uh, it's in the 80s, I think, that uh, people will say that the accident wasn't their fault. And you can see why that is, right? Because it's unclear. Was I driving poorly? Was the other person driving poorly? Was it like unlucky conditions on the road? Uh, Did I have a mechanical failure in my car that I couldn't have foreseen? Like there's all sorts of ways for you to convince yourself that it wasn't your fault. And the tendency is so strong. That that close to 40% in close to 40% of single car accidents, this is like I ran my car into a tree. People will report it as not their fault. Wow. Well, again, because it <laughs> yeah. can be like all of a sudden it was snowing. You know, like y- there are ways for you to sort of make it not your fault. And and so this is the interesting thing is that without the uncertainty, the cognitive bias can't thrive. So your first step is to acknowledge the uncertainty. And then your second step is to acknowledge that the result of that uncertainty is that there's all sorts of ways in in which we then do this mental gymnastics to try to essentially at our core, preserve our self-image, make sure that we're always, you know, as much as possible updating our self-image in in some sort of positive way that we're, uh, protecting the beliefs that we have. So a lot of the reasoning we do is is reasoning toward making sure that we're right, as opposed to reasoning toward trying to find the truth. And obviously, if we're talking about a problem with, okay, what's the information that we're inputting into a decision? That's a devastating thing to do, because we should want to be inputting into a decision things that are true, which is not a perfectly overlapping set with things we believe. But when we're reasoning about new information that comes in, in a way that allows us to preserve the beliefs that we have, as opposed to a way to actually find out what's true and improve the quality of our knowledge, well, you know, that's not great for your decision-making. And we can only do that because there's uncertainty, because we don't know for sure what is true. And and that's where, that's where you have to take that first step and say, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty, and it means that probably I have a lot of bias.
0: checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash beyond. Again, go to shopify.com slash beyond now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash beyond. Obviously, I need to reread the book and, or not reread. What I need to do is do the homework because it's not just a, you know, a prescriptive, Hey, here's the facts and then move on. It's, it's more of a, you know, workbook in some senses on dismantling these hidden biases towards the truth. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I love that. And that's, and that's what I say when I say, uh, reread. I mean, rework, like work through. Do the homework, in other words. And that, yeah. you know, is 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 what was kind of so fascinating to me about uh this process, especially things like, um, you know, we <laughs> we're here we are in twenty twenty one and the joke was, you know, Oh, you know, 2020 is hindsight. And if we could look back, you know, if, if we can now, as in the year 2021, look back on the year 2020, we'll have, you know, the, it's the joke on, you know, hindsight's 2020. You can see it clearly. I don't know if we can. I think we might be too close to it. But uh, I, I think that uh, you, you make that mention of hindsight being 2020. What if what if it's not? Because there's the thing called hindsight bias. And even right. that just kind of blew me away.
1: Yeah, so the funny thing is like hindsight is definitely not 2020.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, no.
1: That's the thing about it is like, so the the problem is that when we look on back on events, w- we have an issue, which is very often we don't know, like we can't remember. We don't remember well what we knew at the time. And that makes it very hard for hindsight to be 2020. Because in order for us to actually see the decision clearly in retrospect, we would need really some record of what was known at the time of the decision. And that actually is, there's a bias called hindsight bias, which is exactly this problem. I have a little funny example in how to decide where I'm in a grocery store and and somebody's speaking on the the cell phone and they have an accent. And I see this um, man say to this woman who's talking on the phone, oh, are you Italian? And she replies, no, I'm Greek. And he says, oh, I knew it. So that's a really good example of hindsight is not 2020.
0: There's so many different biases that, like you said, we could go to the way we could just, you know what, I should probably link to the Wikipedia page in the show. Notes. Yeah,
1: it's so many. <laughs> and, and obviously with Wikipedia, like with a grain of salt, not all yes. of them are explained exactly perfectly, but it will give you uh, I will it will give you a, you know. A sense anyway.
0: Yeah. But, but I, I guess the, the ultimate, you know, to, to kind of tie this into productivity, to tie it into just living a good life. Cause that's ultimately in some ways why we're productive is to get the stuff done or to not be overloaded with the stuff or to choose the <laughs> right stuff. There's the decision making process right there, choosing the right stuff to do to, uh, you know, cause everything's piling up. You got to triage quickly and get it done. Um, the decision making process is. Or can be, or often is hard. And, Mm -hmm. you know, deciding to do something or do the right thing. But then things change, and then then it's adapting, which is why I was so, you know, when you were talking about resulting, it was like, yeah, well, say I make the right decision, but then the bad outcome happens. What lesson do I learn? Well, how do you know? You know, and then learning from past decisions, whether it was right or wrong, if that was even a judgment that could be possible to make just yet. You know, I go back to what you were talking about when you said playing one hand or even a, a few hands of poker. I, I can't yet necessarily learn something, but, you know, maybe play a thousand. I can start to.
1: Yeah, so I think that you know what we need to realize is that we need to sort of say, certainly in the short run, that we need to uh, not create this kind of culture for ourselves. This could be just for you personally or within a team of outcome accountability and start thinking about process accountability. And you know, one of the early exercises that I have in how to decide is to say, and this is a hindsight bias exercise, is to say when you're trying to figure out the quality of a decision, you really need to try to reconstruct uh, your knowledge by by doing some knowledge tracking. In other words, to try to really write down what did I know at the time of the decision. I mean, we can take that simple thing that happened in the grocery store, right? What did you know at the time that you asked that person if they were Italian? Right. Well, I knew they were talking on a phone. I didn't know where they were from. Uh, I thought they were from Italy. That was obviously my most obvious choice uh, because, and then the decision is ask if they're from Italy, right? So, but you can do this with simple things. Like if you're choosing to develop a particular product, um, you say, what did you know at the time that you decided to develop that product and included in what you knew at the time is like, what were the predictions that you had? And we want to include that because that's part of your knowledge, right? The way that you're sort of processing the things that, you know, so what are the things that I was predicting would occur? Um, And then here's the decision I made. In this case, it's like ask the person if they're Italian, here's the outcome. No, I'm Greek. And then what did you find out after the fact? In this case, it would be that the person is Greek. So now we can go back and look and say, first of all, was it reasonable for me to ask if the person was Italian? Sure, because that you know was a, a foreign accent. I couldn't quite distinguish between the two. But is it reasonable to go back and say, I knew it? Well, of course not, because now I can see it in front of me that this was not my prediction at the time. So what that tells us is that okay, so this can be helpful in retrospect, but what's really helpful is to do that prospectively. In other words, as I'm thinking about, uh, should I spend my time, uh, you know, what product should I develop, for example? What, as you're considering the different options to actually think about what are the things that I know? What are the things that are, are true of the world? If I take this particular course of action, um, what am I predicting will be true of the world in the future? These would be things like... Uh, you know, what do I think the timelines are? What am I thinking that the the user uptake would be? What's my rationale for that? So when I make some sort of prediction about like, you know, how much a user is going to like this feature that I might develop um, if I'm a software developer, then I'm saying there has to be a rationale for that. And that's going to be the knowledge that I have, the facts that I have that are going to tell me, you know, it might be, well, there's, there's other features that I've seen that I think they're going to like, or I think this is, you know enough better than the solutions that are available that I'll be able to move things over. Uh, you might have assumptions about, um, you know, how much people will respond to marketing or whatever. Like there's a lot of things and you have dip- people making those predictions and offering those ra- rationales as you're entering into the decision. So you can really consider that option and compare that to other options that you might have available to you. Now, regardless of whether it turns out well or not, you have a way to go back and look at what did I know at the time? Because you now have a record of it. And then you can start to see, did the world unfold in the way that I thought? Did my rationale actually play out? Was it, did it actually work out? Was it true? And what's particularly nice about doing this is that it allows you to start to close these feedback loops before you actually get like, you know, before you have 10,000 coin flips. Because now what we're talking about is really recording. Here's my knowledge of the world. These are the things that I believe to be true. These are the reasons that I think that we're supposed to take this course of action. And here's what I'm predicting is going to happen if we take this course of action, right? So now you've got that all written down. And now you can actually loop back to that, which is what really matters. Because on a given time, it may not work out. But if you continue to apply a good process like that, over time, it will work out. And then you're going to be able to learn better. So, you know, now, so now what's going to happen is you're going to say, well, I got a good outcome, but actually um, the things that I thought that I predicted were going to be true of the world didn't turn out to be true. So I actually uh, had a pretty poor prediction of the world despite this good outcome. So I need to think about why did I think that things were going to unfold the way they did? One of the, one of the examples that I give of this is like, let let's say that I uh, invested in Zoom a year and a half ago. Um, and I had a whole bunch of rationales for why I thought that this was a really good investment. Uh, let's say I felt that the market was underestimating the number of people who are going to be working from home. Uh, and I wrote down uh, what I thought the traction on work from home was going to be, what the conditions of the world were going to be that were going to make people work from home. Maybe I, I felt that. Uh, People were going to start being more talent focused and not require geography in order to get talent and that uh, our technology was going to be good enough to make that easier and whatever. And I had all sorts of predictions about it. Um, And then it zoomed today. Now, obviously, when I go back and look at that, none of that is going to include like and then a pandemic hits and everybody's forced to work from home. And that's why my company's doing so well. And you notice that this allows me to separate outcome from decision quality. It doesn't mean that my decision quality would have been poor it would have meant that uh, I did not predict the success or the reason that it did so well. And, and I imagine there's a lot of people who invested in Zoom or who are patting themselves pretty hard on the back right now. Right. And and that's a little like uh, patting yourself on the back for, you know, playing a hand where if you hit the queen of clubs on the end, you won, that will happen 2% of the time. And you actually did it. Right. And you're like, look at how smart I am. Right. And, and again, Zoom may have been a perfectly reasonable company to invest in. It, it may have been quite a smart decision, but not not to the extent that it actually turned out because it wouldn't have been in your prediction list, right? So this is this is the thing that we're trying to focus on, is uh, how are we actually recording what our models of the world are so that we can go back and check on those? Uh, and then when you talk about like how are you allocating your time and to what, this actually helps us with those time allocation decisions. Because when it turns out that the course that we're on is occurring because when in a way that like we totally didn't predict, it's probably a good sign that you might want to rethink. No matter how it's going, by the way.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, and and we never know, and I think that's the thing is like, well, as you as you were saying that, I, I kept thinking that this all sounds like this new way of. Doing the scientific method for our own mm-hmm. personal life or personal career or, you know, in, in other words, doing it on an, an individual level or, or collectively for that matter, if we had to happen to, you know, be in a position of leadership, but this is this new way of learning how to process this and do that scientific method and sidestep those feedback loops. Because mm-hmm. when you say, I mean, when I hear feedback, I think. Of the auditory, you know, a feedback loop of of, you know, an echo or um, noise to signal ratio that's that's gumming up, you know, my my decision making experiment, you know, and uh, I, I and I think that's the problem that we've seen. Recently or, you know, in our lives is we've seen a lot of rigidity instead of flexibility or unaccepting of new info versus being adaptable and especially maybe a lack of humility or fallibility that doesn't necessarily mean weakness. Mm -hmm. And that's what this is. This is opening up a way to own the process without it owning you. In other words, I can make a good decision and have a bad outcome, but it doesn't have to wreck my life.
1: I I think that that's exactly right. And, you know, I love what you said because I think that we need to get to a place that's second order, right, which is that not so much like, oh, I feel bad because I made a mistake and so, you know, I'm terrible or, oh. Um, you know, some project that I was working didn't work out and but i you know, I stuck through it through thick and thin, even though like you would have been better off putting your time to something else because you don't want to actually admit the failure, right? Because that's so scary to us. And get to a second order place where where what I really care about is that I'm open-minded to the possibility that this isn't the best path for me and that I do that better than other people do. Right. Like if you can, you can there are ways to I I don't think that people are supposed to um, you know, become like Monk-like, where you sort of lose your ego. I think that's incredibly hard. It takes a lot of work, and I don't think it's natural to human pe- beings, right? The question is, can you get that need for these to sort of feel good about yourself and, and, and to feel like you're a good decision maker and you're you're getting these positive updates to your self-image, can you use that for good as opposed to evil? right? And I think that when we get so connected to outcomes and we're trying to fend those off all the time, that that's sort of using that ego to, for, for evil, right. That I'm so afraid of making a mistake that a few things happen. One is I can get paralyzed and get into these like horrible analysis loops that never end
0: Mm.
1: um, and actually never act because I'm so afraid of getting a bad result. Um, When I get a bad result, I end up beating, either beating myself up endlessly, right. Or Uh, blaming it on luck and not actually learning the right lesson in order to preserve the way that I feel about myself. And it's going to cause me to stick to courses of action that I should not be sticking to. Because as long as I haven't given up, there's a possibility that I don't have to admit failure, right? And we're so afraid of admitting failure. But if you're like an outside observer to someone who's sticking to a course that is clearly not working out, you can see very clearly that they should be pivoting. Right. Like when we're from the outside looking in, we're, we're like, oh, yeah, but obviously they should give that up and they should pivot because there's a lot of opportunity cost here. Like they're they're on a losing course. And if they pivoted to something else, they could get themselves to a course that's going to be a winning course. But they don't do it. And you're thinking, ah, look how silly they are. But you don't do it either because you're when it's you, you're you don't want to be the one who admits the failure. So how do we get to the second order place where we say I'm. I'm so proud that I'm a better quitter than everybody else, right? I'm so proud that that I'm not worried about admitting mistakes because I understand that if I if I can see my mistakes for what they are, that that's going to make, make me a better decision maker in the long run. And ultimately, that's going to mean that I get the good outcomes because I'm not so defensive of my own ego that I'm willing to just bypass these incredible lessons that I might be taking um, from the feedback that the world is giving me um, in order to preserve some sort of short-term sense of of self. Uh, and I'm thinking more long-term and I'm thinking more meta. And that's what I really care about is thinking more meta. And I, that's the thing that I'm going get, to get really good at. And I think we need to find a way into those types of mindsets.
0: I think you're right. I, I think it comes down to... Again, doing that work, doing that, I call it doing the homework often, but mostly because I always hated homework, but, uh, you know, so it was always something that like, okay, I, I get it. I have to do it. But, uh, doing, doing the homework of deciding, you know, what are the ultimate goals or beliefs or virtues or, what, or whatever it is that then the smaller decisions incrementally lead towards. And that, oh my gosh, I just had like a mental picture of like Plinko from. Yeah from uh what is it uh say that's sa- price, uh, right. price, price is right price is right, right. and yeah. uh you know you put put it in at the top and it's like it goes left it goes le- it goes right but ideally it always you know it eventually goes towards that uh, you know end goal that you really want it can have lots of twists and turns along the way but I think that's the thing is we lose sight of the ultimate goal and we start to get into that trap of ego and start doing uh you know self-serving or self-preserving even though um like you said it might be from somebody exterior to us obvious that the pivot needs to happen because if we were to pivot we'd get more close to the ultimate goal versus the short-term self-preserving goal that we can't see you know beyond ourselves for
1: yeah and i think that like if you can see the whole landscape like it's very obvious that persevering is like the yin to pivot or quitting right Mm. P- th- that yang, right? That those two things have to work together, and one is not better than the other. This right. is—it's a balance, and and they're complements to each other. In fact, they can't exist one without the other because perseverance with no ability to quit makes no sense. Like, uh, you know, that—that's how you end up like dying on the top of Everest. Is that you persevered too long, right? And we see this all the time. Like you, you just. You know, and we you you you've decided on a course of action, you're developing a particular product, you're whatever. And you just even in the face of so much signal from the world, like stop, 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 you don't do it. And I think about this as a landscape problem that like you 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 choose these hills that you want to climb, but you have to see the landscape for what it is. Because if you can't see the full landscape. Then what you can't see is, wait a minute, there's a bigger mountain over there that would be way better for me. Or I thought this, I thought this mountain was really tall, but it turns out it's just a molehill. And I shouldn't want to be standing on top of this. And so I should climb down it, right? Like perseverance gets you up, but like the ability to pivot gets you back down. And we need to think about those living together and how do we actually calibrate between the two in the same way that, um, You know, overconfidence isn't the only problem. Sometimes underconfidence is the problem. And it's really a calibration problem. I mean, Don Moore has an amazing book that I really highly recommend people read called Perfectly Confident, which makes exactly this point is that I think that what happens is that, like, the zeitgeist gets super focused. On, you know, when you have these uh, opposing forces on one side of the opposing forces, and I think that for confidence, uh, we've gotten very fixated on overconfidence is the issue. Um, But underconfidence is an issue as well, right? Underestimating our talents or underestimating what we can do is also a problem. And it's really a calibration problem. How do we allow these these, you know, the yin and yang to actually live together in a way that that is optimal, and I think it's the same with perseverance and quitting, or grit and quit. Right, that we want to think about that as a calibration problem. Uh, that one can't actually exist without the other. They live in the same space, um, and that requires amazing decision making. It requires the ability to see the options that are available to you, to think through those, to say, to realize when you should abandon a course that you're on or when you should stay on a course that you're on. And you can only do, you can't do this kind of thing with like pros and cons lists. You can't do this with just using your gut because your gut and pros and cons lists are going to, that, that's where all that cognitive bias is living, right? That's going to be where you're going to get into all this like reasoning and in a way to protect the choices that you've made in the past or the resources that you've sunk into something that That you've made in the past. And and we want to be able to see the future in a more uh, objective way. Um, And part of seeing that future in an objective way is realizing, you know, okay, this is something that it's worth it, even though it's hard to continue with. And this is something that actually, no matter how much I want to continue, because I don't want to feel like I've given up or I failed, the the real failure is going to come from staying on this
0: course. I'm trying hard to think of what it is that it's it's where you when you say yes to one thing you're you're saying no to to everything else
1: right so that's opportunity cost and we, we have cost, a lot yes. of neglect for opportunity cost exactly so uh, and and that actually what we were talking about before we started recording which is omission commission bias as well right we tend to really think about we we prioritize the things that we're already doing. Over the things that we're not doing. This is also a status quo bias, is the same thing. So oh, it's not the exact same thing, fallacy. but it's in the same right. The sunk cost fallacy, like all of the, the these, these are all inside view problems, right? These are all things about protecting the choices that we've made in the past, the beliefs that we that we hold. Um our identity gets very wrapped up in in those choices that we've made. And so much of of what I write about is about this identity protective cognition, right? That's Dan Kahan's um, uh, term for it. So when we start to get into that pattern, it's like, how do we get out of that and create more objective decisions? Well, you have to have a, 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 process that is going to discipline all of those things. That's going to allow you to get outside yourself and see things from outside perspectives and to start actually making predictions about the future, um, have rationales for why you believe what you do and, and, and make sure that you're getting some sort of re- record of those so that you can go back and look at them. Um, and then you start to, to really seek out other people's opinions. Because as I said, other people can see your situation much more clearly than you can, right? So you have to get out of that idea that your gut is gonna get you where you wanna go. And you have to start getting into a more objective place that includes other people's perspectives in your decision process. And one of the things that people say to me when I talk about this is, man, like this is really gonna slow me down. Like, what if I have to be fast? You know, isn't this against the kind of like, Silicon Valley and like move fast and break things. My answer is no, this is exactly how you get faster in your decisions. First of all, you're gonna to have to clean up fewer messes, which is like super helpful. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be much more agile because you're gonna have thought about these things in advance and you're gonna you're that, that are gonna allow you to have better behavior in terms of pivots and whatnot and make more efficient choices. You're gonna get better outcomes in your life because you're gonna be choosing better courses of action than you otherwise would have. And you're also gonna, because you're thinking about what the result of those actions might be, you're going to be able to figure out uh, when decisions are pretty low impact. And so you can just go really fast, um, you know, or when they're easily, it's very easy to pivot away from them. Um, that's like, uh, you know, those two-way door decisions, right? So that you can also go really fast, but you can only do that if you're actually giving rationales and thinking about the future, and that, and also understanding what a robust process would look like. Because if you don't understand what a robust process would look like, you're not going to make good decisions about when you can skinny it down. And that's one of the things that you need to do is figure out. Like, I know what it looks like when it's really slow and deliberate, and 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 robust and thoughtful. And because I understand that, I know that this is the type of decision that I can just go fast.
0: Yeah. Right. Um, and and the, you can't
1: do yeah. one without the other.
0: Uh, the, yeah. The, the mental muscle memory being built up to be yeah. able to quickly, again, like I used the word earlier, triage, you get so good at it. That that doesn't mean every decision is perfect, but you get good at being able to do it quickly. Decide when you can do it quickly. Know intuitively you can versus oh this is when I really do need to think about. It. I, right. I reference and you know, and if
1: somebody were to query you, yes. and say why did you go fast on this you, you, your answer just wouldn't be, oh, you know, I, my intuition told me so. Like, even though that's what's driving it, you'd be able to say, well, I went fast on this because I knew that if it didn't work out, it was going to be low impact. And I had an exit plan already.
0: Yes. Yeah. Or based on past data and past decisions. So, uh, I love it. I, you know, I, I say the the word homework again here, because this is another one of those reasons why, yep, I always hated doing it, but when I did it, and took the time to do it then when it mattered most in the classroom i was prepared <laughs> right so uh, it's
1: right exactly yeah yeah i mean you can think about it that way like you spend all that time studying to to do a pretty quick test right it's like that that's kind of the idea it's like if we really want to speed our decision making up we have to slow it down first like Nobody's ever just automatically tied their shoes. You have to take some time to actually learn what the process is. And then once you do that, you can actually execute on those things pretty quickly. And it also allows you to know, like like when people talk about move fast and break things, they don't mean move fast and break everything. Right, right? They, they mean, like, pick your spots. There are certain spots where uh, speed is really great. Iteration is really great. You actually want to break stuff because if you break it, that's where you get the, the big value, right? That's where you learn the biggest things. But they wouldn't say move fast and break things when you sign a two-year lease for a building.
0: <laughs> right. Right.
1: Like, no, don't don't move fast and break that. Like, no, you got to take your time and figure out what kind of workforce do you want and and what kind of space. And, and as you're designing it, uh, do you want it to be open plan or not? And what are the things that are easily changeable that you don't need to worry about the decisions that much? I remember, actually. Um, This is a funny thing. I I remember I was working with a professional sports team and I was working on their decision-making and I came in and they were literally having trouble figuring out what color to upholster the chairs in the lobby. And for some reason they decided to ask me that, right? And I was like, just literally flip a coin. You know, you can reupholster it if you decide later that you don't like it, (laughs) right? But when it comes to um, things that have to do with the physical plant, right obviously you shouldn't just flip a coin right you got you have to decide like do we want an open floor plan or a closed floor plan if we have an open floor plan we don't like it how easy it is to put doors up uh you know you can talk about like you shouldn't move fast and break things when you're when you're releasing a large batch you should that that comes before before you actually produce the large batch right you do lots of little experiments before you actually do the things where you actually where it's going to have a big impact to a lot of customers right so like I think that people, again, it's like this problem with overconfidence, underconfidence, or grit versus quit, or whatever, that we sort of get stuck on one side of the equation. And I think that in certain industries, we get stuck on the speed portion and we think we're just supposed to go fast with everything. And then in other industries, we get stuck on the deliberation portion. We're like, we're supposed to deliberate about everything. And the answer is no, you have to calibrate between the two choices. Sometimes you want to go fast. Sometimes you want to be deliberate. And the only way that you can make that type of decision well, you can be calibrated well, is if you really understand what the most deliberate, slow, robust process would look like. And then you can work from there to figure out how to calibrate how fast or slow should you go on either decision. But it shouldn't be viewed as either or. And I think that we're very either or thinkers about that kind of thing.
0: I I can hear... Many listeners thinking to themselves, this has all been well and great. And, you know, I appreciate the information and, and you're kind of blowing my mind. At least I hope that's what they're thinking. But I'm, I also hear them thinking, or at least how I'm thinking is what's an entry point here for somebody who wants to start doing, you know, this homework other than just grabbing the book and starting to read through it and do the work. What do you think is a great entry point here?
1: I think one of the best entry points, uh, because this, this kind of gets a lot of the, a lot of Bag, like it packs a big punch. Like you yeah. get a lot of these things into one thing is to start thinking about how are you eliciting uh, feedback from other people? Um. So mostly we do it, you, you know, most team meetings are information discovery in the room, right? Like, okay, we're having a meeting. We're trying to decide about, you know, a product we should develop. Let's all give our opinions right now in the room. Um, and and there's lots of reasons why that's a very inefficient way to do things. uh, And there's lots of reasons why that doesn't actually tend to produce particularly good decisions. Um, So the research shows that those kinds of, those kinds of group discussions actually don't produce particularly good decisions. uh, And uh, you don't actually uh, do really good information discovery. And you can imagine why, right? Because like the first, the first thing, the first person that speaks, you end up spending a lot of time talking about what that person is saying. And you don't necessarily hear from everybody in the room. That's kind of number one, because you're you're discovering the information in sequence, right? So, so there's it's just kind of the luck of the order of the, of who speaks. You get a lot of uh, kind of like status influence there. So, like leadership is going to be heard more. Subject matter experts are going to be heard more uh, and maybe some people who have some more innovative ideas or disagreements aren't going to be heard more. Extroverts are going to get heard more than introverts. Um, And there's a lot of persuasion happening in the room, right? As I'm offering you my opinion, I may be persuading you toward mine. And so that I don't actually hear the amazing idea that you had in the first place, because while I was offering my thoughts, I persuaded you not to say the thing that you did. Not on purpose. I don't know I'm doing it, right? So... Notice that when I'm talking about this idea of like how much bias are you letting in? Number one, well, if you're if you're discussing things in a group, uh, that's going to create the most bias in the group. It's going to create the most groupthink. It's going to create uh, the most like this persuasion and um, groupthink and bandwagoning and uh, you know sort of like illusion of consensus and a variety of things that are that are pretty bad. The other thing uh, is that it's going to be really bad for information discovery. So remember, I said that one of the things that's really important is for you to make sure that you're getting uh the highest quality information that gets inputted into the decision process. That's incredibly important. So why do you have a team? Well, you assume you have a team because everybody has different knowledge. Everybody has different perspectives. So I could present two people on the team with the same set of facts, and they probably, one would hope, have different perspectives on that set of facts. If they don't, I'm not sure why they're both on your team. Um, you'd like people to have different perspectives. So, all right, so how do we solve for this all at once? And the answer is asynchronous, independent work. This is the one thing. This is a great entry point into this type of process. So basically, let's say that I'm trying to decide between two products uh, in terms of time allocation. Um, what I can do is think about what is what is the feedback that I'm trying to elicit from the team uh, that's going to help us make this decision? So I can sort of figure that out and you should define that for yourself, which by the way is automatically going to help with your decision because now you're actually thinking about what are the things that you need to know. So there's two things. What are the facts that I'm going to give the team uh, such that they can, they can actually come to these conclusions? And then what's the feedback? What are the opinions that I'm trying to get from the team? So the opinions might be things about like, what do you think the timeline is going to be for development? Uh, What's the lower bound on that? What's the upper bound on that? It might be, what do you think the cost is going to be? How big does the team need to be? Uh, Once we release it, what do we think? uh, What's your prediction for for user uptake or user satisfaction in a particular type of time? You know, so on and so forth. If it's a physical product, it it could be like, what do we think our margins are going to be? How many units do we think we're going to sell? Whatever. And you can do that with the products that you're considering. So you sort of figure that out. I'm not, you know, obviously, I'm sure people who are listening to me who actually do products are like, wow, she sounds really <laughs> like an idiot. And the, the answer is because I don't, you know, I, I'm making this up. I just want to say I'm not an expert in this part. So I'm just, but so you would know your business better than I do. And you'd figure out what are the opinions that we need. And then for any opinion that you're eliciting from the team, make sure that they're that they're giving you your rationale. Uh, so the rationale is going to be all the, th- you know, all the facts that they're bringing to bear, their experience or whatever. And it sh- the rationale should be quick. It should be like two or three sentences. You don't want people writing dissertations. Just give you the gist of why do you you believe this thing that you do? The last thing about this is that where possible, it's really, really great to get people to give you specific answers. So uh, that's why I said like, if you wanna talk about um, how long do you think it's gonna be before we can actually release this product, don't have them say, I think we can do it pretty quickly or I think it's gonna be a long time. Actually tell them to give you an estimate with an upper bound and a lower bound. Uh, what's the quality of the market that we might release this into? Uh, Don't just have them say, I think it's a great market. Uh, Like make them give it to you on a scale of zero to five in terms of market quality um, and define the things that you care about in a market. The reason why you want to do that is the more specific you are, the more that I can see that say Eric and Annie disagree with each other, which is really what you're trying to find out. Now, once you sort of figured that out, have each member of the team, send that out to each member of the team independently and have them answer these things independently where they're, their responses are hidden from the other members of the team. You could do this as simply as on email, right? Just don't hit reply all. You can set something up on Coda or Airtable, you know, or Google Sheets or whatever your favorite productivity tool is, right? You can have people go do that in a way where their answers are hidden from each other. You can, you can develop forms for repeated decisions. You can do it as a one-off. It's all good. Now you then collate the answers, you reveal that to the group and the group gets to look at those asynchronously prior to getting into the meeting. So now what has happened is that when you walk into the meeting, there's amazing things that have come from it. Number one, you're not doing the information discovery in the room. Everybody has now seen the, the the spread of opinions that exists on that team. They've understood what people's rationales are for why they believe what they do. And they've seen where the dispersion is. So now you can acknowledge the areas that you agree. Okay, we all agree the earth is round. That's awesome. Let's not spend 80% of our meeting talking about that, which is normally what happened. There's a lot of double-clicking in those situations. But let's actually look at Eric and Annie. You actually disagree about the timeline. Eric, you think it's going to take two and a half months for this to be developed. Annie, you think it's going to take one and a half months. Eric, can you give your rationale? Annie, can you give your rationale? Notice now we didn't know that we were we had any dispersion. So we're willing to give our opinion because uh because we don't know that there's any disagreement. And in groups, we don't like to disagree. Everybody's gotten to see our opinion and we get to offer our rationales for the opinion with no with no expectation that we end up disagreeing with each other. It's meant just to inform the group. So that's the first thing is that you actually get to see all the information. The second thing that's amazing about this process is that it makes your conversations in the meeting much more efficient because you specifically spend your time talking about the areas of dispersion, which is where all the good stuff lives, right? That's where you get to find the truth because you're getting the outside view colliding, right? You're getting different perspectives colliding with each other. And in understanding those, that's where you're going to find the truth. Right. Which is like incredible. So that's like an incredible thing that happens. The third amazing thing that comes from it is that the, the the members of the group stop feeling like, ooh, if I'm not with the consensus then I'm just weird and I'm an outlier, because when you actually elicit information in this way, uh, everybody on the group realized that everybody has different opinions. And isn't that what makes the group great? And that's the whole point of having a team. One assumes you have a team because they're going to bring different perspectives, except that the way that we run teams actually reduces us uh, the amount that we actually see those different perspectives. So this allows people the safety, to hold non-consensus opinions and not feel like that's really weird and like they're publicly disagreeing with anyone, which is also incredible. The fourth thing that comes from it, this is that you have a record of what you believe at the time. You have a record of those opinions by definition. Because when you're eliciting those things in advance in this way, you create a record of what everybody thinks. And that helps us then, again, to start to close those feedback loops, de-bias the way that we think about the past, and so on and so forth, which is an amazing effect of this. And then the last effect of this is that it makes you think about what matters for the decision. Because I need to know in advance, not in sort of a gut way or an intuitive way, what are, what are are what's the feedback that I'm trying to get from Eric? And in answering what's the feedback that I'm trying to get from Eric, I need to think for myself about what's important in this decision. What are the things that I need to know in order to make a high-quality decision? So, you know, all of that is amazing. And by the way, it's much more efficient. You spend less time in meetings. You get to the heart of the matter much, quickly, much more quickly. You learn that there's going to be lots of uncertainty that you don't need to agree to decide. Um, you know, and that's all really good, and it speeds everything up. So I know that was like a lot, but you said, what's the entry point? The entry point is asynchronous work independently.
0: Oh, my gosh. It's one, thank you for being so expansive on that answer, because I'm glad we got all of that. And two, it's a great example and a great starting point. But that's just it. It's a starting point. So mm-hmm. I, I want to turn and point people as we wrap up here to the book. Do you have any preferred place to send people to? I know, you know, everybody always says hey, wherever books are sold, but like we can send them to your site, which is AnnieDuke.com, other places, any that you can mention.
1: Yeah. So people can certainly find me at AnnieDuke.com. There's a contact form where people can write me. Uh, I love to hear from readers. As I said, um, how to decide was a book that I kind of wrote because of conversations I was having with my readers. Uh, So I love hearing from people. uh, You know, you can hire me there as well, but there are, you know, lots of videos there of me talking, there's uh, archives of newsletters. Um, You know, it's like a variety of stuff that's sitting on there. Plus, links to where you can buy my books at all the usual places. Uh, support independent bookstores also. Perfect. Um, uh, and then, uh, you know, I'm, I'm personally active on Twitter. I can tell you, like, it, you can go to LinkedIn and I'm there, but you're probably... Like talking to my business manager more than me, <laughs> so uh, if you want me, go to Twitter. Okay, <laughs> so perfect, that's me. So perfect. that's it, at Annie Duke, and it, you know, and it's just like there's so many social channels now. It's like you have to again, you have to pick your spots, right? So. The spot that I've picked is Twitter, you know and and one of the things I'll say about Twitter that I, th- I was actually having this conversation uh yesterday is people are like, "Oh, but don't you hate Twitter? It's so whatever, and I say, you know you have control over your Twitter
0: right
1: <laughs> um, right you get to decide who to follow and and who to listen to and whatnot, and you can block and whatnot. So I really enjoy Twitter. I love interacting with people uh, on Twitter because I've made Twitter a place that I like. So, um, so that's, that's where I think, I think I like the interface too. Like it's a very easy interface. So that's, that's where, um, I've chosen my spot.
0: Perfect. Well, I'll link up that as well in the show notes. In fact, I followed you there. Annie's been great. I can't wait till we can talk again. Thank you so much.
1: Well, thank you.
0: Well, that's another podcast crossed off your podcast listening to-do list. I hope that you enjoyed this conversation with Annie Duke on how to decide decision-making tools. This conversation really opened up a new realm of thinking for me, and let's just say there's some ideas for future shows that have come out of this episode. So if you found this fascinating, if you found this helpful, I encourage you, again, to go grab the book, How to Decide. Simple tools for making better choices. Start there. Even go grab her other book, Thinking in Bets. Making smarter decisions when you don't have all the facts. And then outside of that, if you really enjoyed this conversation, you probably know somebody else who needs to hear it and start thinking about thinking. And if you would do me the favor of sharing it with that one person, hit the share button in your podcast player app of choice where you're listening to this, or head on over to the show notes where you'll find the links to the books at beyondthetodolist.com thank you so much for sharing. Thanks for listening. And I'll see you next episode.